The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host. Today It's Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of our good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, as usual, Peter's got a great study for us today. Now, uh, in recent weeks, we've been looking at uh, more historical topics, but uh, you may have heard that there's been some uh, wildfires in Cape Town, where Peter is based. So we're going to be talking about that today with a show entitled The Real Story Behind the Wildfires in Cape Town. So where would you like to start us off with this topic today, Peter? Well, Andrew, uh, Sunday, the 18th of April, which is the anniversary of Professor Martin Luther's stand before the emperor, my conscience is kept to the word of God, here I stand. And we were having a Reformation 500 service for that the day before we'd had the Reformation 500 conference, which was well supported with hundreds of people worldwide joining us live stream as well for this celebration. And our hall was packed out uh, for this. And it, it, it was a wonderful um, event. But the 18th of, of April, uh, is also the Independence Day for Zimbabwe, when they celebrate the betrayal of Rhodesia and the handing over of the jewel of Africa, as many call it, into the hands of Robert Mugabe uh, by the British governor, Lord Soames. Christopher Soames, whose son-in-law, Winston Churchill, was the governor of Rhodesia that, um, that Britain had sent out for the express purpose, apparently, of betraying us into the hands of Marxist mass murdering thug like Robert Mugabe. Now, uh, interestingly, uh, that morning, as I was on my way to conduct the service for the Reformation 500, I saw a fire and you could see the, the smoke. It, it was significant, but I could I could see because we live in Rondebosch where the fire was. And so um, as as uh, our mission base is right there uh, where this where this fire erupted. Rondebosch is the oldest suburb in, in Cape Town, and uh, it's um, it's got a long heritage. It's where the Grotteskeur Hospital is, where the first heart transplant has taken place. It's where the Rhodes Memorial is. It's where the University of Cape Town is, where the Grotteskeur Estates, uh, which was the Prime Minister's residence built by Cecil Rhodes, donated to the country uh, at his death by his will. So 
uh, Rondebosch is, is an historic place with lots of historic monuments. And uh, all of this was under attack on Sunday because what happened is officially 8.45 a.m., the blaze was reported to the fire and rescue services and they responded. And this was on Hospital Bend uh, on the slopes of Devil's Peak, which is part of the Tabor Mountain uh, Reserve. Cape Town's a city built around mountains with oceans uh, on uh, both sides and with mountains behind and around. So it's quite a unique city because uh, and it also restricts your travel because you've got mountains and ocean <laughs> compressing you into certain areas that's got to go. But having mountain forest uh, and oceans around us makes Cape Town quite unique. We're the southernmost city uh, in Africa and we are stride two oceans. I think the only city in the world is stride two oceans, the warm Indian Ocean, the cold Atlantic Ocean. And so uh, here uh, in, in Cape Town, we have a lot of great history because this is the mother city uh, of South Africa. It's, the, uh, its history goes back over 380 years uh, as, as a settlement. And um, this fire was reported 8.45. And so the fire brigade responded and, and I could see um, as I was heading to the Reformation 500 church service, that there were about five fire trucks, or we call them pumps in South Africa. I used to be a fireman. And so it looked like five fire pumps as at the scene, a Hrydeskir Hospital, where the world's first heart transplant took place. On the one side of the road and opposite Hrydeskir, uh, on the slopes of Devil's Peak, there was a fire. And there was smoke rising, but I didn't think much of it because uh, there was... <laughs> evidently enough fire trucks there to handle um, what was at that stage quite a small blaze. And I noticed there was no wind, which is good because wind is a catastrophe when you've got a fire, of course. And uh, so we went into uh, our church service. And when we came out of the service, the sky was turning dark and the clouds were coming and the, the, the sun was turning orange and red. Uh, you couldn't see... Uh, across uh, to the mountain even because of the massive amounts of cloud and ash was falling all over our mission uh, suit coming in we were having to close doors and verandas because of the the, the smoke and the ash coming in and uh, ash was just falling all over our mission and our vehicles and and what is going on here and then the report started coming in roads memorials engulfed in fire the roads memorial tea garden has exploded uh, uh, literally fireball got up and next thing people are sharing pictures of this and the helicopters are, are flying overhead uh, from Newlands uh, fire, wildfire services we've got two Huey helicopters which are used for firebombing uh, these fires now I, I was a fireman before and uh, so I know a lot of the people involved and, and the facilities and could immediately know which stations are being mobilized and this was massive and the fire had had wrapped around Devil's Peak, the foothills of, of uh, the Table Mountain complex, and it had gone from the Kurdiskia Hospital right around and engulfed the Rhodes Memorial, uh, and, and the tea garden was destroyed uh, by the um, gas bottles, I, I presume. But I was wondering, how could the gas bottles explode? Because what I was shown was clearly um, uh, a, a film of, of a absolute cloud of, of um, fireball going up into the sky, which could have only been um, the gas. But that was behind stone walls, uh, built on stone, 
in an inaccessible area. I don't know how the fire could have even reached it because there are a lot of stoned parking areas, stoned and paved, and and there was no way for the fire to even reach that uh, area. So that was very strange. Uh, I thought immediately, this sounds like awesome. And uh, the next thing is, we hear that the Jagger Library, uh, which is the one 0.2 million volume library at University of Cape Town was ablaze. Now, I know University of Cape Town. Uh, this is my area. <laughs> um, I'm all over these areas. I know the geography instantly. And the Jagger Library has, it's, it's made of rock. It's not just made of brick. It's made of stone, mountain stone and rock. And how does a bushfire uh, burn down a solid rock building and every uh, library's got um, firefighting precautions and all kinds of of uh, safety mechanisms uh, smoke detectors and all the rest that that would prevent this how does a fire come into a library unless it's awesome and there's human uh, cause of course it's sunday so the library should have been closed anyway so this this didn't make sense and then we hear that the mustard mill which is the oldest windmill in the Southern Hemisphere. It's, it dates back to 17, uh, 1790, 1796 it was built. And this windmill, a fully operational windmill, um, was bought up and repaired by Cecil John Rhodes over 120 years ago and donated to the people of the Cape. And uh, here the, the windmill had caught fire. But, but I know that Mostert Mill is on the other side <laughs> of the M3 motorway. And the M3 motorway is a big, wide motorway with walls on, uh, and fences on both sides. How does a bushfire, and there was no wind at that stage, how does a bushfire jump a motorway and ignite the, the windmill? So uh, as I'm still considering this, uh, we hear that other houses, uh, thatched roof houses, fair enough, but houses in Rosebank and Rondebosch were ablaze. And there were other buildings on university campus ablaze. Well, at this point, you can imagine, this this is a mega crisis. Cape Town's built around this uh, forestry area. And so 250 firefighters were mobilized. It was not just Cape Town, but Epping and Weinberg and Goodwood fire stations all sent fire trucks in. The wildfire services were mobilized as well. And uh, we had to get people from every area. There's also volunteer services uh, working on fires and and the wildfire volunteers. So aside from the professional firefighters, there was a whole lot of other volunteers, seasonal types of firefighters who were coming in to help. And the helicopters were being mobilized and just the air was full the whole time. It was like being in a war zone. You're just hearing the helicopters going over and they, they're filling their buckets, uh, big massive canvas buckets. Uh, they could take a thousand liters of water at a time. So it's about a ton of water. And, uh, I've been there when they've been dropping water before, and the only thing you can do if you under um, where they're targeting for firebombing with water, you've got to lie flat uh, because um, it's literally a ton of water that comes down as they release um, uh, the mechanism to open up the bucket and, and the water comes down. So they water bombed the blaze. And because there was no wind, uh, this this was uh, quite workable to use the helicopters. And it was... It was literally about being, like being in a war zone. You've got the smell of smoke. You've got smoke everywhere, smoke getting in your eyes, helicopters over, and uh, the heat had increased, and you could feel the, the heat uh, coming off this inferno. And 
Uh, of course, this is a nature reserve uh, on the slopes of the mountain. Cecil Rhodes brought the whole area up and donated it to the people of the Cape in perpetuity to prevent it being developed or turned into habitations or uh, uh, exploited by um, timber, uh, lumber uh, business or anything like that. So uh, this is a, a national treasure. Uh, our Newlands Forest and the slopes of Devil's Peak, the whole Table Mountain National Park complex, and of course the Rhodes Memorial. And I couldn't help but think, is this coincidence that we've got a fire on the anniversary of, of Mugabe's seizure of power in Zimbabwe, the revolution in Zimbabwe, to use their term, and uh, at the fire in Cape Town around Rhodes Memorial. Now, Rhodes Memorial is built of rock, um, and uh, so the memorial is not affected, actually, but of course the the trees and the grass and the bush around it has been uh, badly burnt. Um, some of it was was arrested by firefighting, uh, so it's not all destroyed, but um, the memorial tea garden is, is of course, totally destroyed, and, and it's, there's immediate suspicion that this must have been arson because we couldn't see how the fire could have even reached where those uh, gas bottles were, but but the devastation was was obvious. So we were uh, still um, shocked over this. When when you think of the Jagger Library in the centre of, of of the University of Cape Town, uh, it's got a whole range of absolutely irreplaceable first editions. It has, for example, most of the archives of our. Um, most famous architects in South Africa's history, Herbert Baker. Herbert Baker designed a lot of great things, including union buildings and uh, uh, Herbert Baker's collections totally in uh, that library. And now, we know that there were all kinds of mechanisms to protect the library and fire doors did come down and protected many of the special uh, collections uh, in the university. So we don't know how much was destroyed, but the main central reading hall and certainly hundreds of thousands of books are in ashes and destroyed and gutted completely. And one wonders where the um, firefighting um, mechanisms were in the central part of the Jagger Library. We trust that a lot of collections have been saved, uh, but um, uh, this is a loss of mountains of history. Now, while all this is going on, there are posts that people are sending me. And... Uh, uh, this is a post on social media by Mongolami Gazzini, um, which uh, he made on on the Sunday. Every white man's house must be destroyed. It's payback time for stealing our land. And then uh, the same man posted a few minutes later, this fire hit the white people at last. Leave my country. Okay, that's from somebody who doubtless was not born here anyway. Uh, then we've got from Zangakuli. Rhodes Memorial must burn to the ground. This is not just a fire, this is a cleansing process. Colonial rot has no place in society. Let it burn. Students must assist with petrol and paraffin. Make sure the step that nature's taken is quickened. So that's from Zandakuli. Also on, on um, April 18th, that's at 4 p.m. On, on Sunday afternoon. Other posts that people uh, send, this is from the Student Representative Council Secretary General at the UWC, which I think UWC, the University of the Western Cape, I'm guessing. Well, Student Representative Council Secretary General posts, let it burn to the ground. And then uh, Zander Kelly uh, posts again, UCT students, 
You must desist the fire, buy petrol. Roads moral must burn to the ground, ashes to ashes. So there's an absolute flurry of um, uh, these kinds of destructive uh, posts are being given. And then uh, at s Sunday night, uh, just after eight o'clock, we got a report uh, with picture of a black man in handcuffs being led away by police and said a 35-year-old male has been arrested and charged with arson after he was caught by police on a mountain while it was ablaze. Now, actually, it, it wasn't the police who, who caught him. Uh, the story is that it was a local member of the neighborhood watch was out walking with his dogs, and he saw three males starting a fire on the mountain in a separate area where the fire was not raging, and he alerted authorities. He chased them down, and he managed to catch one of them. Two of the suspects managed to evade arrest and are currently being sought. I've heard that uh, they've caught the second suspect who claims to have started the first fire as well, although the official report right now is that it was vagrants uh, having uh, a, a fire for cooking uh, on the slopes of Devil's Peak that started the initial blaze. All of how that got so out of control uh, is uh, still to be investigated. So a Western Cape police spokesman, Colonel Andre Trott, confirmed the arrest of the 35-year-old, saying he'll appear in court soon, and uh, that's uh, not um, confirmed as to what happened. Well, uh, Sunday night, we could see the fire on the mountain, and the fire was going up the mountain, and uh, uh, you could see it almost towards the peak of Devil's Peak, very distressing places I've hiked with my children. And, uh, you know, you, we, we know there's mountain goats up there, there's porcupines, there's baboons, there's a little buck doker, and, and so on. And there's so much wildlife that are affected by these kind of horrific fires. Well, overnight, while we could see the light, the fire's going and firefighters are working through the night, at two o'clock in the morning of Monday the 19th, gale force wind suddenly picked up and uh, it swept the fire around to the other side of the mountain um, and uh, uh, to Friedhoek, which is facing the city bowl, facing uh, Table Bay uh, and, and Cape Town Harbour. And uh, the residents were ordered to evacuate. And so residents facing the fire line, which was coming straight for their homes, they were pouring out of their home at two o'clock in the morning with children, pets, belongings, uh, hundreds of people fleeing. And uh, the firefighters trying, struggling desperately to keep the inferno back from the homes. And there was a lot of clouds and smoke. And uh, uh, the risk uh, management or disaster risk management people uh, said they evacuated several streets in the suburb closest to the mountain, including the tall Dyser Park Towers and all nearby schools. Apparently, 11 schools were closed uh, because of the fear of smoke inhalation. Uh, and there was a lot of smoke. Uh, then they said to contain that fire on the Cape Town side by about 2.30 in the afternoon on the Monday. Now, the, the winds on Monday were so bad that we couldn't use the helicopters. Uh, the helicopters are very key. We've got two Huey helicopters that are used for firefighting based at Newlands Forest, and they fly about 4,000 hours a year, responding to an average of 300 fires a year. And uh, uh, by Tuesday, uh, thankfully, the winds were down and so uh, on Tuesday, uh, the 20th of April, uh, with the winds slowing, the helicopters were mobilized, the South Ghana Air Force mobilized more helicopters to assist. And it just all day, you could just hear the helicopters coming over overhead and uh, water bombing the fires. 
Well, by the time they they managed to uh, extinguish the fires, we're talking about something around um, uh, three or four in the afternoon uh, on Tuesday. Uh, the area devastated was about 600 hectares. So 600 hectares of National Park Forestry Reserve have been uh, burnt, devastated. The the tally is nine civilians have been hospitalized for smoke inhalation, six firefighters injured in the line of duty, 11 buildings destroyed, and uh, that includes six buildings uh, on the University of Cape Town campus, which are all stone buildings uh, far from the scene of the fire, actually, of, of, the, of the wildfire. So that has got to have a separate cause because these are internal fires within, for example, the Jaggers Library and uh, massive destruction done there. And there's all these Marxists posting uh, uh, joyful, gleeful, happy emojos uh, about the fire and saying, let all this colonial uh, rot burn and, and help it along by buying paraffin and, and petrol. So in, in the middle of all this, you can imagine, uh, already on Monday morning, 4,000 students were evacuated from the university residences. So the whole upper campus, all those students who in those areas were evacuated and rehoused in hotels around the city, which seems very extravagant. But uh, right from the start, we started these university uh, activists and student representative spokespeople demanding that all academics must be suspended. There must be no classes, no tutorials, no laboratory tests, no semester assignments required, uh, and that they all need trauma counseling. Now, uh, I, I thought that was actually quite shocking and disgraceful and somewhat unbelievable. Uh, and it's a sad commentary on our society that this attitude of entitlement and this entertainment-orientated and saturated generation is so entitled that to think that of the thousands of students who evacuated, I would have thought that many of them should have felt duty-bound to stay and fight the fire and try and rescue facilities and books and to uh, repair what needs to be repaired, to rebuild what needs to be rebuilt, to fix what needs to be fixed, to clean, to, to do something positive. I mean, it's there. Uh, university and residences being threatened and they enjoy the facilities and most of them in the upper campus are there for BBBEE, that's broad-based black economic empowerment affirmative action, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, benefits where they're getting completely free the facilities. When I've been involved in fires in any area, whether we're talking about up in the field in Sudan or, you know, uh, fires that start because of aerial bombardments by the uh, Arabs and so on, uh, the, the whole community gets involved in trying to save what can be saved and put out the fires. And, and that's normal, that you see communities rallying together. And in fact, throughout Cape Town, there was a lot of magnificent examples of people gathering together, especially through neighborhood watches, and uh, donating eye drops and uh, bottled water and energy bars and baked uh, home goods for the firefighters and all these people who couldn't go home who do who are working through the night, who are fighting the fires. And so there was outpourings of, of bucky truckloads of, of materials uh, going off to the fire stations and Newlands Forestry Reserve to help the people fighting. And, and the SPCA, the um, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, mobilizing to help the porcupines and the deer and other animals caught up in this. And uh, 
there's some heart-rending pictures of little tortoises being carried out and them just uh, drinking water out of the little cap of somebody's water bottle. And uh, you can imagine these these poor creatures have been dehydrated severely. And so there's a lot of people in Cape Town responding to the crisis uh, out of um, a sense of service and uh, and caring for neighbors like the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and yet these 4,000 students living on campus, the most beautiful campus imaginable, most magnificent facilities. It's like Oxford on the mountain slopes. Uh, and yet they just wanted to be housed in hotels, get trauma counseling and uh, um, have all their assignments and uh, tests and so on suspended. And the vice chancellor of University of Cape Town, um, Mama Kathy Fakeng, uh, uh, confirmed this. No classes, no tutorials, no laboratory works, no tests will take place this week. And uh, that they, they're trying to uh, provide for the trauma of these poor students while they're being put up in hotels, for goodness sakes. And why are they not doing something to help fight the fire, defend the university, protect it? Well, many of us can remember in 2015, uh, when University of Cape Town was the um, sort of flashpoint for destroy monuments, cancel culture. And it looked like the whole university, it couldn't have been, but it looked like the whole university, thousands of students and many faculty members, uh, right up to the, the vice chancellor at the time, mobilizing to pull down the monument of the founder of the university, Cecil John Rhodes, and apparently traumatized that there's a monument to the man who's built the buildings, donated the land and paid for uh, the scholarships that they all benefit from. And uh, they were going berserk, ripping down uh, the monument of Cecil Rhodes. And one wonders if any of those uh, Rhodes Must Fall supporters, adherents and organizers were involved in the desecration of the Rhodes Memorial last year, which we were involved in the repairs of that when they decapitated the bust of Cecil Rhodes at the Rhodes Memorial, which is slightly above and to the right of the University of Cape Town on the same mountain slope. And uh, one wonders uh, how many of them were also involved in the rioting, burning, pulling down of uh, precious uh, original oil on canvas paintings and burning them because they said they're vestures of colonialism. There's many of the university students have been involved in throwing rocks and stoning cars and uh, burning buses and uh, blocking, uh, causing massive traffic jams and the M3 motorway was blocked by student riots and what they called protests, but which were evidently violent and therefore not a protest at all. So plainly, we have a lot going on here at the moment. And uh, I just think it's a sad commentary on those students, staff and faculty of UCT who have not gotten involved. And I've gotten pictures. I'll be posting more pictures. I've really posted quite a lot of pictures on a Friends of Rhodes Memorial Facebook page and uh, uh, the Friends of Rhodes Memorial website also uh, got a number of pictures uploaded already. More will be later. And uh, uh, I've even put up some of these screen uh, cap screenshots of uh, these threats from different uh, members of student representative councils calling for the burning of uh, colonial buildings and letting the university burn and, and burn uh, the monument to the ground and ashes to ashes and so on, uh, so that people can see for themselves what's going on. Henry Morton Stanley School of Christian Journalism's Facebook page also has got more on this and uh, 
it's it's an ongoing developing story. But plainly, what we are dealing with here is revolutionary rhetoric amidst a a disaster and people reveling and rejoicing in what is actually quite distressing and disturbing. And when you think of how much flora and fauna is being destroyed, how many hundreds of thousands of books up in ashes and flames uh, in the Jagger Library and how much destruction of buildings that have stood for, in many cases, like the Jagger Library for well over 120 years. So uh, what on earth can justify that reaction? But also uh, the fact that why are some people satisfied with being spectators or being part of the problem instead of wanting to be part of the solution? Because most of us who hear of these things, we want to rush there and help. And we're, in fact, organizing cleanups uh, this Saturday with Friends of Rhodes Memorial and so on to go in and to uh, clean up and help repair and restore what we can and and uh, to bring some food and water to the wildlife that we can reach. And, of course, doing what we can to to alleviate the suffering that, that is within our power to alleviate. And yet the others who sit back in their hotel rooms complaining that they don't have enough internet connectivity or that they need trauma counseling uh, and they haven't done a thing to help. This sort of shows that we've got a society built up of people who are the burners and people who are the builders. The people who make things happen in a positive sense and then there's others who complain or whine and whinge uh, or um, are involved in trying to incite negative activities. So in this whole situation that we're facing uh, this inferno, this this uh, disastrous catastrophe uh, that that's happened here, and hundreds of hectares of uh, national uh, park destroyed. There's also voices of an environmental group. Parkscape um, has said the authorities were repeatedly warned about this fire risk in Cape Town. So Nikki Schmidt of the environmental group Parkscape has uh, given interviews stating that. They and other environmental groups were repeatedly warning the Cape Town authorities that there was a great risk of, of fire on the slopes of, of Table Mountain and Devil's Peak. And uh, Nikki Schmidt of Parkscape claims that mismanagement of the Table Mountain National Park put lives and property in unwarranted danger. But they warned of vagrants. There's at least 100 vagrants living in the park. This is a national park. And building illegal fires, no fires allowed on, on the whole of Table Mountain. You cannot have a briarflace or barbecue, you can't have a cookout, you're not allowed to do anything anywhere near Newlands Forest or Table Mountain. And yet these illegals are allowed to um, squat in a uh, national park within sight of Krutuskia Hospital, making fires daily. And this, as she said, in a mountain slope where the same slope where the fire started is littered with pine trunks and stumps and tinder drive just waiting to go up in flames because the Ministry of, well, I meant to be Ministry of Forestry, I call them the Ministry of Deforestation, have chopped down hundreds of thousands of trees in the slopes of the mountain. And these trees normally just lie there. And of course, they get totally dry. How can they not? And they're just lying there with pine cones and pine needles and uh, the stumps and the trunks and all the debris that's littering the place that hasn't been cleared up. It's just waiting to go up in flames, as she said. And so uh, Parkscape and other environmentalists are warning that this has been seen. It's a disaster that's been waiting to happen. And uh, the municipality, which should be dealing with these things, and the Parks Board, South African National Parks Board and others, are not doing their job. 
And all of this just underlines again why the Cape wants its independence. And one wonders also uh, if the fact that uh, support for Cape independence has been growing so rapidly in recent months, whether that also could be something behind the motivations of the arsonists in um, setting this inferno blaze and the very slow reaction of um, national government bodies like Sandpox, uh, as opposed to the municipal ones, those controlled by Cape Town, like the wildfires, volunteer services and others who responded so wholeheartedly and so effectively. You can see the Cape Town controlled groups have responded magnificently, whereas the national entities have been very slow uh, to respond with often too little, too late, and are in many cases the problem rather than the solution. So, Andrew, this, this is still a developing story, but this is on the ground. We're here. Uh, it's all around us. And uh, for people who are interested in what's going on in Cape Town, what's behind these wildfires, I doubt that many, if any, of the uh, news media overseas are giving these details of it. Uh, but that's some of the real story behind the wildfires in Cape Town. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, it's shocking. And, uh, you know, on behalf of the audience as well, I'd like to offer my sympathies to everyone affected in Cape Town, the decent people that have had to endure this for what seems to be the acts of uh, the usual suspects, the Marxists and what have you. And uh, it's interesting how these people claim to, you know, love the environment and the animals and all this. And then they commit acts like this, which, uh, you know, kill the destroy the environment, kill lots of animals and things like that. Uh, they do seem to like uh, setting fire to things. That's something that we see them doing throughout the world and throughout history. Um, and the other interesting thing that I find with it, uh, just as a little aside here, of course, it's all the Marxists that are behind getting everyone to uh, go to lockdown to wear masks. I read some reports somewhere that uh, these masks, of course, now that most people are wearing them around the world, uh, they're being discarded and they're getting caught up uh, by animals and causing them injuries and stuff like that because people, you know, the, uh, most decent people would dispose of something uh, in the correct manner, but a lot of people, sadly, will just throw things on the ground and things like that. But going back to the wildfires, the other thing, when I think about the Jagger Library, as you say, and the Rhodes Memorial and all these other buildings that were affected, um, they've been around, as you say, for hundreds of years, and they've never uh, been burnt before. So before, we had a system in South Africa called apartheid, and back then, things seemed to be a lot safer and a lot um well, you weren't being having events like this taking place. You weren't having people being slaughtered on their farms, all these different things. So it seems to me that apartheid was a better way of life than what you have in South Africa today. And one thing I'm going to throw in very quickly here, because I wasn't going to do this, but as I've just said this, uh, I was sent by a listener called George a video clip of a... A politician, he was a politician for the Labour Party in the UK, a guy called George Galloway. And he's speaking to what I believe looks like the Oxford Union. It's only for about a minute, but uh, he was an anti-apartheid campaigner. And I'll be including the link to the video, which you can watch because it is a video. I'll be playing the audio in the post for this show, andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com. But just have a listen to this, folks, and um, you'll find it quite fascinating as to who were his biggest anti-apartheid supporters in South Africa. Here we go, I, folks. I'll let you in 
on something you don't know. I'm one of the few people on the left in Britain who traveled the length and breadth of apartheid South Africa as an underground agent of the African National Congress led by Nelson Mandela then in Paulsmoor Prison in Cape Town. Therefore, the subject of apartheid is particularly important to me. The question of racism is particularly important to me. And in parenthesis, let me tell you this, that throughout the entirety of my time underground in South Africa, under apartheid, every house I slept in, every dinner I ate, every car I drove in was provided by Jewish activists of the African National Congress. There you go, folks, was provided by Jewish activists of the African National Congress. And as we've discussed on this program uh, before, I believe that the law in South Africa is that every business has to be owned 51% uh, by blacks. But that doesn't apply to the Jewish uh, gold and diamond mines, does it, uh, Peter? Well, no. In fact, the worst crime you can commit in South Africa, according to the penalties, is illegal diamond buying. Now, um, IDB is a particular category of crime. So this is true also for Namibia, Botswana and, and South Africa. So uh, De Beers has managed to persuade the governments of South Africa, Namibia and Botswana that every diamond, wherever you find it, belongs to De Beers. Uh, if it's uncut diamond, that is, as opposed to something you bought in the shop that, that they sold. So uh, if you find a diamond on your property, it belongs to the beers. If you are scuba diving off the coast of South Africa or Namibia and you find a diamond, it belongs to the beers. If you happen to find a diamond in the middle of the Orange River uh, and it's part of your farm, it still belongs to the beers. And so uh, it's an interesting thing that uh, while they claim to be a black majority government, uh, they give very preferential treatment to uh, the Oppenheimers, the De Beers, the Anglo-Americans, the uh, in in uh, Zimbabwe, it's the Lonro uh, and uh, other groups like this. Which so there's actually not much of a difference between the capitalists at the top and the communists on the other side. And what's the common denominator? Synagogue of Satan unites them all together. And uh, Nelson Mandela, in his book, says it was Jewish communists who converted him to communism and uh, recruited him to the Communist Party of South Africa when he was studying at University of Fort Hare. And Robert Mugabe says that it was Jewish communists in South Africa at University of Fort Hare who converted and, and him to communism and recruited him to the Communist Party as well. So there's a whole number of major Marxists in South Africa who attribute very positively and gratefully uh, to the Jewish community, uh, especially the communist atheist members of the Jewish communities as being the reason why they uh, devoted their lives to communism and terrorism and so on. So it, it's amazing. It's a disproportionate percentage. Obviously, not every single Jewish person is a communist, uh, but the vast majority of communist leaders are or were recruited by them, uh, as this person testifies. Back to you, Andrew. 
Yes, I think that's very, very interesting. And of course, uh, again, it's a very anti-white type of thing that they're up to because as we see with, um, when you look at it on the face of it, people can say, well, you know, apartheid isn't fair. You're locking a certain race in one area, another race in another area and what have you. But that's not what the conversation about. The conversation is about safety and the conversation's about what was going on uh, before this happened um, and what is going on now. And we can see all the violence and all the mayhem now. And as Peter alluded to earlier in the show, in South Africa, they conducted their first heart, the first heart transplant in the world. Okay, do you see any of that going on today? Is that likely to be happening today when you've got all this mayhem going on? So something was working right in that area. And when you look at these, uh, I remember we were bombarded in the UK because they wanted to put all these sanctions on South Africa and all this nonsense that they were doing. And uh, I believe that Margaret Thatcher was initially resisting this and she was getting pilloried by her own party and things like that. But essentially... Uh, we'd see all this black-on-black crime. And it was the people, the supporters of Winnie Mandela, who would get um, tar- car tyres and they'd fill them with petrol and they'd set, put them round uh, blacks that they didn't like, who were anti-ANC, who weren't communist, and they'd literally set them alight. And you don't just die quickly from that. Uh, I believe that that's quite a lengthy and extremely horrific death. Uh, And again, it was this black-on-black crime. It wasn't whites going in and killing these people. And again, it was inspired by communism. What can you tell us about the violence in the black apartheid areas in South Africa, Peter? Was it largely black-on-black, or am I mistaken here? No, completely. In fact, the Institute for Race Relations, which is a very, I would say, uh, leftist uh, group, uh, the uh, Institute for Race Relations South Africa was a major opponent of apartheid and uh, were um, regularly putting out statistics and so on to put the national party government in the worst possible light. And yet the Institute of Race Relations documented that the vast majority of people who died in the 48 years of apartheid in South Africa uh, died from uh, terrorism at the hands of the ANC uh, or in faction fighting between the ANC and Carter, in other words, what you could call black-on-black violence. So when they put the statistics together, if I'm just remembering from, I'm, I'm taking this from memory now because I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but uh, they documented in the 48 years that the National Party was ruling South Africa and, and apartheid was our um, uh, ruling system, uh, there were 18,700 people who died violently of which 650-odd would have been members of our armed forces, uh, South African Army. Uh, and there were another 100 and something who were police who were murdered by criminals or, or terrorists. And uh, uh, then uh, when, when it got down to it, there was something like uh, only in a matter of a couple of hundred people were killed uh, by uh, the police or armed forces within South Africa, not just not speak now about the war on the border of Angola fighting the Cubans and Swapa, that was something else, but just within South Africa itself. And uh, of the 18,700 killed, more than 14,800 were killed by the ANC or uh, in fights between the ANC and uh, the uh, in, in Carter Freedom Fighters. So it's quite intriguing that to this day, people bandy around the statistic from the Institute of Race Relations that 
18,700 people died under apartheid. But that's, that's the people who are killed mostly by the anti-apartheid um, ANC communist terrorists. And uh, uh, that includes South African police soldiers and civilians who were killed by car bombs, limpet mines, necklace murders, assassinations by the communists. So it's, it's, it's like blaming the victim um, for what the uh, aggressor has done. Uh, just like people will often take the full death toll of the Second World War and uh, pin it to Germany. Uh, and in that amount, they will include the millions of German civilians killed by aerial bombardments and the millions killed uh, by the uh, Marxists in their population replacement, ethnic cleansing, uh, forced removals of millions of Germans from Eastern Europe, from, from what had been uh, parts of Germany, but now were in the hands of the Russians and, and so on. And uh, it just seems extraordinarily dishonest to uh, take statistics of people who are victims of Marxism and blame it on the people who are the victims. And uh, this is what is often done when it comes to, to apartheid South Africa. So in the old apartheid South Africa under HF Favut, for example, murders each year were something in a region of uh, about 160 people killed of all causes, murder, homicide, and so on, uh, a year. Uh, and yet under, uh, under Mandela, we rose up to 25,000 people being murdered every single year, and that was in peace. So when we were at war, uh, our death rate for murder was far lower uh, than uh, when we were at peace. And that's not even counting the tens of thousands of babies killed by abortion every year, uh, by abortion which was legalized by Mandela. Uh, we've had 1.8 million babies killed legally since Mandela legalized abortion in 1997, but I'm, I'm not counting that. So uh, when you think that we've had more than 650,000 people murdered in South Africa under the ANC uh, since they took power, uh, which which dwarfed all the people who died in the war in Angola and the people who died in the war in Southwest Africa, what became Namibia, or uh, who were even killed in the riots and violences and the ANC terrorism in the country um, back uh, under National Party control. So uh, in this case, we could say that peace is much worse than war and the excruciating deaths that people suffer. You, you just think that a fire is indiscriminate. It kills everyone. A bomb is indiscriminate. Landmines are indiscriminate. Car bombs are indiscriminate. Um, and yet the ANC put car bombs in streets like in Church Street, a bombing in 1983, uh, you know, ripping through people and buildings and bringing down guillotines of glass from these uh, uh, high-rise buildings on both sides and literally cutting people uh, in two uh, in the streets below. Uh, you think of uh, the bombs put in restaurants, uh, bombs put in, sh in railway stations, landmines put in roads, and then the, the destruction and burning and, and the kind of people who can stand by the side of the road and throw rocks at people driving in cars. We've had mothers driving past with their baby killed in the baby seat in the back seat while they were driving to give a lift home for uh, a black person in the area that they're driving them through. And the next thing, their thanks for this is university students standing on the side of the road. In this case, I'm thinking of University Western Cape, throwing rocks and kills a mother's baby while she's doing a good Samaritan deed. This is the kind of thing that we could multiply by the tens of thousands of examples of uh, where thoughtless, heartless people in the name of justice and racial equality have inflicted 
far worse injustice and suffering and death on um, people who had nothing to do with it, completely innocent bystanders and people passing by uh, than what they're claiming to be protesting against. And so it is, you, you just think that uh, today uh, or yesterday, the news coming out about uh, the um, uh, Derek Chauvin police uh, case over in Minneapolis and people dancing with joy in the streets over hearing that he's been found guilty of murder and manslaughter and all that sort of thing, when uh, the, the shops were all uh, being boarded up in anticipation of the verdict and uh, there was uh, the National Guard called out because they were expecting rioting if the verdict didn't go the way they wanted. And all over the pressure on the jury, you must find them guilty of these things or there will be rioting and uh, you're going to have uh, not just Minneapolis but countrywide. So instead of justice, instead of looking at the case and looking at, uh, well, the, the facts are, did the policeman have intention to murder or did this uh, suspect swallow a dangerous, deadly amount of drugs and kill himself through uh, his lifelong habit of, of abusing drugs. And there were all kinds of testimonies from the autopsy and so on that, that the man died of drug overdose. And uh, he would have died of the drug overdose whether the policeman arrested him or not. And uh, here they were trying to, to restrain him from causing damage. And if you look at, at all evidence uh, that's been presented uh, on, on camera, it's hard to understand how the jury could have come to a guilty verdict, uh, except for the fact that they were afraid of all the violence that's going to happen if they didn't come out with a guilty verdict. That's where what it's come to, where you can have thugs and, and gangsters and criminals in the streets intimidating even judges and juries and governments to do things that are not legal simply in order to appease the mob in the street. It sort of reminds you of Pontius Pilate releasing the terrorist Barabbas and condemning Jesus of Nazareth in order to appease the mob in the streets. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, uh, excellent commentary there. And what I'm going to do, we'll go just slightly over uh, because I've got a couple of sections in the Synagogue of Satan about Nelson Mandela. So because we've got on to the topic of him, it's uh, worth throwing them in here. So firstly, this is from uh, 1964. On 12th of June, Nelson Mandela is jailed for three, 193 counts of terrorism, sabotage and the attempted smuggling of weapons to help continue the aforementioned actions. His alleged co-conspirators are Dennis Goldberg, Arthur Goldreich and Lionel Rusty Bernstein, who in case you hadn't realised were not black. Mandela would be offered release from prison in 1985 on the condition that he renounce violence as he had only been placed in prison to protect the public from his violent activities. He refused, but due to political pressure from the Jew-controlled nations throughout the world, he was released in 1991 despite his continued refusal to renounce violence and even brazenly stated in his first speech following his release that the armed struggle would continue. Mandela would go on to front the ANC, the African National Congress, and seize power. Shortly thereafter, in 1995, the ANC set up the Truth and Reconciliations Commission, which is headed up by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and instructed to investigate alleged crimes of 
the apartheid regime. Interestingly, this commission discovers that whilst the apartheid regime were responsible for the deaths of 500 of their black political opponents over the years, the ANC were responsible for the deaths of 22,000 of their black political opponents, nearly 50 times more than the so-called oppressive regime and of their fellow blacks. So now let's go forward to 1994. And... um, I've got here Nelson Mandela, who served 26 years in prison for, amongst other things, 193 counts of terrorism committed from 1961 to 1963, and had stated at his trial in 1964, I do not deny that I planned sabotage, is elected president of South Africa to a fanfare of media sycophancy worldwide as the Jewish media praise the historic day that a black man is elected to run South Africa. What they fail to mention is that Mandela, who incidentally prior to his incarceration wrote the pamphlet How to Be a Good Communist, has simply been put there to ensure there is no disruption to the running of South Africa by the Rothschild Oppenheimer family and in particular their gold and diamond mining interests. Indeed, the current head, this is back when this was written, of the Oppenheimer family, Harry Oppenheimer, owns 95% of the world's diamond mines. Isn't it surprising that the media fail to inform their readers why, if the blacks in South Africa are getting Africa for the Africans, all the gold and diamond mines, i.e. the wealth of South Africa, is still controlled by Jews? Communism was, of course, invented for the Rothschilds by Moses Mordecai Levy, more commonly known by his crypto-due name of Karl Marx, which makes it no surprise that the African National Congress in South Africa was guided by two communist Jews, Albi Sachs and Yossel Machel Slovo, known as Joe Slovo. Indeed, when Nelson Mandela's ANC took over South Africa, Slovo was named Minister of Housing. So uh, we'll leave that one there. Uh, Peter, any comments before we wrap it up? Well, yes, we... I think in many ways this fire is is just a metaphor and it's symbolic of the real intellectual ideological fires raging through our universities, our entertainment industries, or should I say indoctrination and defilement uh, industries, that throughout our world the devastation being caused by this fire in the minds of men, which is a description given, uh, that was the title of a book about the 1960s race riots in America, Fire in the Minds of Men. Uh, In a real sense, you've got to regard Marxism, communism, and all of its uh, ancillary wings, including the uh, Frankfurt School of Marxism, the the whole uh, critical race theory. These are are fires in the minds of men which lead to people committing arson on the ground. And imagine the kind of people who've probably achieved nothing in their lives, but they burn down a library which represents hundreds of thousands, if not millions of man hours of research and insights and history and the destructive nature of of Marxism. We need to recognize that we need to get back to our roots, which is why I think it's so symbolic that on this weekend, on 18th of April, 2021, we're celebrating 200 years, 500 years since Martin Luther made his stand uh, on the word of God to, and he laid the foundations for Western Christian civilization freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, all of which are under attack right now. We need to get back to our Christian roots, our Protestant God-fearing roots, our biblical roots, and rebuild society on principles that will endure. We need to recognize we're under attack. And just as during a fire, you recognize it's an emergency, every second counts, lives and property are at stake. We've got to move vigorously and urgently. 
I think we need to have the sense and uh, to think we had this fire in Cape Town, same time as we're holding this Reformation 500 conscience capture the word of God conference. I think it's more than symbolic. We are facing a serious crisis. All of Western Christian civilization is under attack, is being undermined, and the threat is like a raging tsunami forest fire coming towards us. There's no time to lose. There's no time to waste. We need to wake up our neighbors, our friends and our family, co-workers. We need to get the word out. We need to be promoting radio programs like this. We need to get people to reliable websites, direct people to real news away from the fake news and the fake history, and back to understanding our real history, because the first battlefield is a rewriting of history. And Karl Marx's disciples have been super busy rewriting history, guilt manipulating us, gaslighting us, intimidating us, Stockholm syndroming us. It's time to resist and to fight back. And the best thing you can do is know the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if anyone wants details on this, I'll be uploading more on our website, uh, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. And people can get hold of me personally at peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fascinating presentation as always. So Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. You have been listening to the real story behind the wildfires in Cape Town. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, I hope you have a wonderful day. And bye for now. Bye.